Who's your king? That's, that's a wonderful theme throughout this whole series. We'll be watching the king, my king, now and forever. So my question to you is, who's your king? That may be a strange question to ask you, and you may be sitting there saying, well, we don't have a king. Didn't this whole United States start by getting out from a monarchy, out from the authority of old King George, right? And if you think about it, if you were raised in an American context, there's something baked into the whole way of thinking in the American context that is anti-king, anti-royal, anti-monarchy. Were any of you raised outside of an American context here? Any of you? Where were you raised? Where? Oh, England, where? Yeah, I, I lived in Portsmouth for a while. Did you ever, ever get over to Pompey? No? Okay. So England, yes, lots of similarities to this country, but very different. We, we tried to get away from you guys and when we started this whole thing. Anybody else raised in a non-American context? Yes, Ethiopia. Yes, probably the only person here who's ever even lived in a context where there's a monarchy. Yes? 95, it was abolished, I think. Yes, Haile Selassie, 75, okay. But he returned after the war. It's, anyway, so Elmaeus, has anyone else ever lived in a country where there is a monarchy, a king? Isn't that fascinating? So it, it's, it's an interesting concept when you think of a democracy, right, where we vote our leaders in, where there's an anti-royal mentality, Right? Do you know it was very intentional that the founding fathers came up with a title for the leader of this country, and you know what the title is? Not your eminence or your royal highness. You know what the title of the president they intentionally gave him is? Mister. It's Mister President, the same thing as the farmer. Isn't that cool? Very intentional. That's why built into this American idea is who do you think you are? We love taking people down a notch, right? And that's because we got out of this idea that you somehow inherit because of your family leadership. We put you in that position. In other words, the president works for us. So this idea of a sovereign, of a king, by virtue of the fact of who he is, not because we decided to put him in that position, can be a very difficult idea for us. It can be something we really struggle with because there seems something inherently wrong with it. And there is because this country was founded on the fact that you can't trust someone just because of what family they come from or their, their DNA or what, what their experiences are. The, the founding fathers realized, yes, there's something good in everyone, so let's give everybody a vote. But at the same time, Let's have checks and balances at every level because no human being can be trusted because power corrupts, right? And so when I ask you, who's your king, that may be a strange question for you, but what I want you to realize is in asking that question, what I'm saying is, to whom do you answer? Who's calling the shots in your life? Who has authority in your life? Because the Bible describes your creator, God Almighty, as the king of kings. And we have to understand this idea of a being, a person 
who is our creator to whom we submit, to whom we answer. He's the one that made us for himself, made us in his image, gloriously in his image, and he made us for himself, for a relationship with him. And so we answer to him for how we live our lives. And so what we want to do this week is develop a positive view of having a king with this refrain we'll hear through the videos, the king, my king, now and forever. And we find out who he is and who we are and what it means to be faithful to him in his book That's why Darlene keeps referring to this book and Judith keeps making fun of her for being so reliant on it, accusing her of not thinking for herself sufficiently and not being creative enough and not having enough of her own will. But what we realize is that God's will and God's ways and who God is and who we are and what a meaningful life is comes from his word. And so we've got to understand who our king is. And what we mean by that is who you're living for, what you're living for, what's giving your life meaning, where you find truth, how you know the difference between truth and error and lies even. How do you know these things? Do you just figure it out? That's what you're constantly told in our culture today from media, from every Disney movie. Follow your heart. Look inside yourself. It's all you'll ever need is what's in you. Is that true? It's a constant message we hear, but is it true? And here's what I want you to realize. What you believe, your convictions, in other words, what you're convinced of, your convictions, they create your character. They shape your character. Your convictions create your character. And do you know what your character does, who you are? It creates your life. It it sets the whole course of your life. What you believe, your convictions, lead to who you are, your character. And that leads to the whole course of your life. That determines your life. The biggest decisions of your entire life are met at this point in your life for most people. These high school years are vital in getting in place what you really think is true and what you believe in the depths of your soul because that will decide everything. That will determine whether your life will be fulfilling and meaningful and eternal and in relationship with your creator and in a life pleasing to him and abundant and with him forever or if you decide to live as your own God, your own king or queen, and determine life for yourself and say, thank you very much. I will be my own God. I will ascend the throne and sit on it as the determiner of everything for me. There are really only two ways to think about this, and this will decide everything. And the Bible tells us that when you decide to be your own God, you go your own way, and your life ends up in utter emptiness. And judgment. The Bible says the whole of human history is heading somewhere. And it's called judgment the day, day, the day we answer to God for how we lived our lives. So will you live a life recognizing your king as not only your king, but your creator and your father and the best friend you could ever have who's willing to love you to death? That's really the choice 
we have. And so we're going to look at the book of Daniel. And if you have your Bible, please open to Daniel chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning and then the next rest of the chapter this evening. And we're just going to get the lay of the land, figure out where we are, what's going on here in the book of Daniel. I just want to read these first two verses. Daniel chapter 1 is a great book. I've been impressed once again how incredibly relevant it is. The Bible can be very challenging to understand because it's stories from very long ago with people in some ways very different than we are, in contexts and places very different than ours, but in the most important ways, they're no different than we are. And the lessons we learn here are fundamentally true and what we need to hear all these years later. And so Daniel chapter 1 sets the stage for us. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, the hand, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to glean all you have for us. Lord, I'm so grateful that as a fallen, frail man and preacher, I don't have to figure out exactly what everyone needs to hear this morning to move closer to you. And I certainly don't have the power, but you do. And so we pray that the spirit that inspired this word would illumine our minds and transform our hearts in the exact ways each of us needs. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on here? Well, The people of God have been brought into another land, and they're going to have to learn to be faithful in an incredibly different context than their home, Jerusalem. At this point in the history of Israel, they wanted a king. The people wanted a king. And what you need to understand about the people of Israel in the Old Testament is that the people of God were this select people from the face of the earth that weren't special in themselves. They had to actually be reminded of that consistently, that they were a very small, insignificant from the world standards people, and God chose them to be his primary vehicle of revealing himself and working out his plan of salvation. See, human beings fell into sin, and God, from the very beginning of that fall, that rebellion against him, starts working out a plan of redemption, of saving them and restoring them in a relationship with himself. And throughout the whole Old Testament, the primary focus is this people called the nation of Israel. It's a geopolitical entity of an ethnic people group, but this is God's chosen people. But what he says to them when he makes a covenant with them, starting with Abraham, is I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But the point always was so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them and brought into this relationship with God that they have. That's the whole point, that it spreads out to the nations. 
And so we have to understand that, that this is just the people he's chosen to eventually bless every tongue, tribe, nation of people on earth to bring in massive amounts of people back in a restored relationship with God. And by this time in the nation's history, it had been divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the focus here is on Judah. And as we see, this King Jehoiakim of Judah was in charge, and he was taken over by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So they've been taken out of their land and brought into a foreign land, another culture, another land with completely different customs, completely different religion and language. It's bewildering. And the challenge before them is what does it mean for them to be faithful in a foreign land when they're no longer home? That's a challenge. And, and the first thing we need to realize is we're not home. If you're a human being, you're not home yet. Because this world is messed up. If you haven't noticed that, you need to start paying attention more. The world's really messed up. And there's a longing we all have to get home. Have you ever noticed that the greatest stories in the history of the world, the, mo the majority of them are about getting home? From the Iliad and the Odyssey, the, this, the ancient great literature about this quest to get home, right down to the Lord of the Rings, you just want to get back to the Shire, right? To the place of safety, the place of security, the place where you're known, the place where you know people and you're loved and you're cared for. You just want to get home. And so we need to realize that we're not home yet. That's what the Bible says. This world's been taken over. By powers of darkness, principalities and powers in high places, there's an evil that reigns over this world. The Bible even calls the devil, Satan, the prince of this world right now, under his domain. And, and we all need to realize, as comfortable as our lives may be, as convenient as they may be, as secure as they may be relative to the rest of human history and lots of parts of the world, we're not home yet. And, and we need to come to terms with that. And if you settle in, and what the Bible says, store up treasures here as if you're already home, you're going to miss life. And so don't think we're home yet. And so we need to relate to these people and then decide what it means for us to contribute to the world we live in, but not conform to it. That's the challenge, right? We want to be salt and light. We want to be a blessing to the world, but we don't want to be jammed into its mold or else we'll never be a blessing to it. If we're not different from the world, we'll be useless to the world in any meaningful way. And now, here's what I want to prepare you for. So many of the stories in the Bible take on mythical proportions for us and seem irrelevant. And this story of Daniel could. A lot of you have probably heard about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Probably none of us are going to face those kinds of challenges, thrown in with a lion or thrown into a fiery furnace, testing our faith and who our real king is. But what we need to realize is these dramatic kingdom-advancing realities that we're part of working out in this world, for you and me, work out mostly in the really mundane things of life. 
My, uh, last night, Maddie said my name. I, I'm Eric Tonis. I am a theology professor at Biola University in Los Angeles, and I've been teaching theology there for 24 years. And I am a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, my amazing church family that I love dearly, that I come here under their authority with their blessing and prayers. And I am the husband of Donna. Here's a picture of my family. It's my wife, Donna, of 34 years. And my daughters, Caroline and Paige, and my sons, Sam and Isaac. They're delightful young people who I love so deeply and cherish as, as their dad. And most of all, though, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I grew up in Ansonia, Connecticut. And my mother, I, I came from a very broken family in Ansonia, Connecticut, uh, on the Naugatuck River and the Housatonic River down in Connecticut there, and came from a very, very broken family. But in the midst of the challenge of raising two boys by herself from the ages of three and five, I was the three-year-old, my mother would sit us on her lap and read the Bible to us, a children's Bible. And as long as I can remember, I was very aware that I needed a Savior, and Jesus was that Savior. And he did everything I needed him to do. As long as I can remember, Jesus has been everything to me. That doesn't mean I haven't battled with sin and idolatry and, and, and moving away or backwards at times, but Jesus has been my king. As long as I can remember, he's been everything to me. And, and so my life has been the process of working out what it means for him to be my king, not mostly in dramatic things, but being a dad, being, being a husband faithfully for 34 years, loving a flock of people just outside of Los Angeles and my church as one of their shepherds and seeking to do that faithfully in the power of the Spirit. To teach my students at Biola, I've had thousands of students through the years, and I want to teach them in a way where they know my fatherly affection for them and my big brother care for them and that they learn the truth of God. And so, so this is something I work out constantly throughout my day. And as you think about these stories, these dramatic stories, be thinking about, okay, but what does that mean for me? To be faithful, following these role models of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the sports team you may be on, or the, the high school context you're in, or in your youth group, or among your friends, or your neighbors, or co-workers you may have if you have a job somewhere, or, or the people you're in band with. Whatever your context, be thinking, what does it mean for me to be faithful? Because we live in a culture that's increasingly opposed to faithful Christians. Living this out in ways that invades every area of our lives. I heard somebody say, he was my age, and he said, when I was a kid, I remember being a good Christian could get you a job. They would say, he's a good Christian man. You should hire him. But he said, but today, being a Christian could cost you your job. It's a very different world that you live in at your age than I lived in when I was growing up in Connecticut. 
And so we've got to think about what it means for us to be faithful because these people were taken out of their land, right? And so we need to understand what's going on here. Daniel and his friends need wisdom. They need encouragement. They need perspective on how to live faithfully and confidently in a world, in a culture that's opposed to their God, Yahweh, that they follow. And we desperately need that too. You will need it far more than I ever will in my life because it's getting more and more opposed to being a Christian in our culture. And so we need to learn from them. And so Daniel tells us that they're in exile. It's an important word. I I want you to know that word. Here's a definition of exile. They're in exile. It's just a person who's expelled from his home or country by an authority and is living in a foreign land. Like I said, we're not home yet. You may not have had the experience of moving from Ethiopia, but you need to realize we're all in exile in a very real sense. We're in exile. And the period of biblical history we're understanding, it's so important to read the Bible and understand the Bible as a story that talks about God restoring relationship with himself through human history. And Daniel is a period of that history. And it's called the exilic period. And that simply means this period where the people of God were taken out of Judah and were living in Babylonian captivity. Really a whole generation, about 47 years, the people of God lived under this Babylonian rule between 586 and 539 B.C. And so the people of of Judah were living in this exilic period. And when you read the Bible, you can't just parachute in to wherever you may land in the Bible, unaware of where we are in this unfolding story. And so in our story of Daniel, it's called the exilic period from the word exile, right? And there are certain books that focus on this, in particular, Ezekiel, Daniel, Esther, and a few Psalms. And listen to Psalm 137 describing the perspective of the people of God from the exile. Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Why were they weeping? When we remembered Zion. Now, that word Zion is a very important referent to the city of Jerusalem. Please realize that God made promises to his people, and he promised to do specific things at specific times and specific places. And there's no more important place in the Old Testament, Old Covenant promises than the city of Jerusalem, the place where the Messiah, the one who would solve our sin problem, comes and brings his kingdom. And so when you think of God solving our problems of our own sin and our, our, our need for restored relationship with him, you've got to think about the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who comes that we're depending on. Right in Genesis 3, God promises after Adam and Eve rebel against him that the seed of the woman is going to come one day and he is going to solve all our earthly problems. And that Messiah is Jesus. He fulfills all these expectations. But the city of Zion is that city where the Messiah will come and the kingdom will come and God's way with his people through sacrifice and through uh, approaching him in the temple all takes place. So when you're removed from that, it's drastic. I preach at a church in Compton sometime, have some 
great friends there. And I love the name of the church in Compton, just outside of L.A. It's, It's called Citizens of Zion. Love that name for a church. You know, we try to be so cool with our church names these days, some of us, but, but they, they want to be super biblical, and they are citizens of God's heavenly city. Not literally in Israel, in Jerusalem, but spiritually, they are members of God's kingdom. They're members of God's city. And so said, we remembered Zion, where we used to live, home. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion, mocking them. And they say, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I love that. Very poetic way of putting our challenge before us. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You know, African-American slaves were forbidden to worship, to gather for worship, because slave owners knew there was power in that sort of thing. And so they they wouldn't let them gather like that. And so they would do it in secret. And, And they would soak wool blankets and hang them on the walls of little cabins so it would muffle the sound of their singing. And they would have to sing quietly, but they would sing. In, in an impressive, uh, vicious environment, they would sing anyway. When it was not allowed, they would do it. And Christians have had to do that through our history. What does it mean for us to sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? When there's opposition to those songs, I lo- that's really our question in many ways this week. And there's radical difference between Babylon and Jerusalem, as we'll talk about tonight. The customs are different. The culture's different. The social institutions are different. The language is different. The people are different. The social groups are different. And and it's drastic. Now, I've had some cultural shifts in my life. Like I said, I grew up in Connecticut. But as small a state as Connecticut is, if any of you are from Connecticut, it's amazing how different the subcultures in Connecticut can be, Right? There can be very different areas. Well, I grew up in a gritty factory town outside of New Haven on the Housatonic River. Lots of Italians, lots of Eastern Europeans, lots of African Americans. Uh, we, we were a, a blue-collar, gritty, earthy people who shot straight and told you what we thought. If we had Hispanics, there were Puerto Ricans. It was just beautiful. I loved the culture I grew up in. And, and I grew up in a town where football is the religion. I don't know if anybody know about Ansonia football, but we've had two losing seasons since 1889. (laughs) Two, not bad, yeah. When I was there, we never lost, and that's usually the case. And and when a little baby's born in Ansonia, the parents will bring, uh, if it's a boy, a little blue football to to the hospital and put it in the in the crib with the baby hoping he grows up to be a charger. And, and it's, it's a rough town. And, and when I was a junior in high school, halfway through my junior year, after the third custody battle, I moved in with my dad. I put everything I owned halfway through my junior year of high school in two big green garbage bags, and my dad came and picked me up, and I drove about an hour and 20 minutes away to where my father lived in Essex, Connecticut. (laughs) Now, I I don't know if you realize that in such a small state, you can have such different cultures. 
I got there. Do you know when I got to Valley Regional High School, I didn't even know that high schools in the United States had soccer teams. And perfectly good athletes chose soccer instead of football. It was a very strange thing. I, I went from listening to a steady diet of earth, wind, and fire in the Commodores, where I grew up, to the Marshall Tucker Band and Jimmy Buffett now. People are listening to completely different music in this little state. And people went from, from dressing very differently in the late 70s, early 90s, uh, early 80s, uh, to now I moved in. People grew up sailing in Essex. That was their big activity. Sailing. Sailing. And, and there were, I would see guys with green corduroy pants with, with whales on them. Like whales that they got at L.O. Bean, that just standard. And it wasn't a dress-up costume party or something. It was very strange for me. The food was different. I couldn't get a decent pizza. <laughs> I couldn't get good kielbasa, right? It was so, it was amazing. Hour and 20 minutes away. And I felt so out of place. I dressed differently than everybody. I walked around with my, my Levi's and my untucked flannel shirt and my baseball hat and my untucked Timberland boot, uh, my untied Timberland boots, which may be very familiar to some of you. But in Essex, they wore docksiders. And, and I had a state football champion jacket and a kid in the football team named Mike Sampson came up and he said, we don't want you wearing that around here. And I said, well, why don't you win a championship and get one of your own, man? And, and so it was culture shift. But can you realize that even though we can feel so out of place and far away from home with those little relatively meaningless differences, how different it was for the people of God to not just have all those kinds of things change, the food, the customs, the language, everything changes, but the very God they worship the very means of sacrificing so you can approach this holy God. You're away from the temple. You're away from the sacrificial system. You're away from everything that gives you access to the most important thing in your life, relationship with God. It makes those differences I experienced when I moved to Essex from Ansonia just irrelevant. Compared to these central things, it was life-shattering for them. Their entire lives were changed. There was an entire worldview at work here. Their worship was now different all around them. They were cut off from the city of God, from his promises, from his worship, from his sacrifice, from his temple, from his coming Messiah. And so no doubt they're wondering, has God left us? Has he failed? What's going on here? The radical difference between King Nebuchadnezzar and King Yahweh, the king of kings, couldn't be more pronounced. What are they doing there? Well, Jeremiah 25 tells us they're there because of the discipline of God. He says, you didn't listen to my voice. If you read Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 11, please read that on your own later. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 11 says that God is disciplining his people. He sent prophet after prophet, and they disobeyed him, and they disregarded his word. And so he's sending them to another land under another king for discipline, to wake them up to the, the reality of their rebellion, 
to wake them up to the decisions they've made, to the, the deaf ears that they're not listening to God with. And so he's, he's showing them that they've got a massive problem. You know, Hebrews 12 6 says this, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Look, if we're living in an increasingly hostile culture, if we're living in a culture that increasingly pushes back against what we believe as Christians, let's not think this is happening because God is off duty. Because God has fallen asleep, because God doesn't care about us, because God has left us. No, and we can see it as a form of refining, of discipline, of shaping us, of, of really sifting out cultural Christians and fake Christianity. You know, there are parts of the country where most people would say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. We were just talking about what somebody, we were talking about somebody from Texas and, and what it's like to be in Texas. And everybody's, oh, yeah, I'm a Southern Baptist, not even just a Christian, but I'm a card-carrying Southern Baptist. And everybody's part of the culture, and it can be hard to get to reality sometimes. So there can be a blessing and a clarity that oppression brings, a kind of discipline, a refining reality for us. They're there because God loves them, and so he disciplines the ones he loves. Listen to this passage in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, there it is. This is New Testament now. This is after Jesus has come and restored relationship with God through his atoning work. And this is what the apostle Peter says to this church to whom he writes. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There it is. They're not in Babylon. They're in this collection of Gentile cities in Cappadocia, and it says in exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Is that beautiful? When Jesus comes back, he'll find us faithful, even in the midst of great opposition. That's how you don't lose hope. You realize that God is at work. He's not absent. And I want you to notice in this chapter three gaves that show us the sovereignty of God in this. Look at verse 2. Look what it says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand. Look, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. He's not. God is. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. God's providing. God's with them. God's giving them all the things that they need. And so he is the king. He's sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar seems like a king. Jehoiakim is a king. But God is the king, my king, forever. And so he is sovereign. That's a word we need to become familiar with if you're not. He's sovereign. Here's the definition of sovereignty. Just a good definition that I have on a slide. Here you go. God has absolute rule over creation as king and total control and determination of all that happens. God's in charge. He's the king. 
He's ruling and reigning, even when it seems like he's absent. You know, Darlene is saying, Lord, I haven't heard from you. I miss you. I'm lonely. God has spoken to her through his word that she keeps going to, but he feels absent. He feels distant. Does he care? Is he there? Is the question that's lurking in their minds. And he is. Listen to Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. Daniel has this vision, and look what he says. He was given authority... Glory and sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. This is talking about Jesus when he eventually comes in this messianic prophecy, this anointed one, agent of God, prophecy, talking about his authority. All the nations worship him. He has dominion, and his dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Listen to what A.W. Pink says is that a great name, about the sovereignty of God. It is the foundation of Christian theology, the center of gravity in this system of Christian truth, the sum around which all the orbs are grouped. And it is our vital source of strength and comfort as God's children in the midst of the storms of life. And so we recognize that God is sovereign, and when he feels distant, when we feel alone, when it feels like he doesn't know what he's doing, we trust that he is the all-wise, all-good sovereign king of the universe and he's working everything out to a grand and glorious conclusion for his glory and for our good now here's what i want you to realize we're going to have some great role models in daniel and his friends but they're not the hero of this story jesus is he's the one that we always need to be looking for in the bible listen to this amazing passage in john 1 the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He, Jesus, the eternal Son, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He brings us home. In restored relationship with God, he brings the kingdom of God. He brings everything we need. Jesus, in other words, went into exile so we could be brought out of exile. From the glories of heaven, he leaves and he's rejected so we could be accepted in spite of our sin. When he saves us, we become part of his kingdom. And this kingdom is often at odds with this world. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. So there are two kingdoms in which we live. And we want to be salt and light and helpful and loving in the kingdom of this world, but always see our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And when we recognize Jesus, and when we trust Jesus as the only true king, we'll follow him with faith and resilience, no matter what opposition or persecution or rejection we face when we're able to say, the king, my king, now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand your word better this week. Lord, I thank you for these precious young men and women who you've created in your image and brought here this week, not by accident, but you as the sovereign king have brought us all here together for this experience for a few intense temporary days. And Lord, I pray that you would bring profound transformation and understanding to each of our lives in exactly the ways we need so that we can leave here in just a few days 
so different than when we came. More trusting in you than ever before. More dependent on you than ever before. More more obedient and worshipful toward you than ever before. And so, Lord, we can honestly say more when we leave here than when we came that you're our king now and forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.